omega, and so that you can inhale what's next. Let's uh, talk about that a little bit. One of the things that happens is when we hold on to, to the retreat experience is that as you start leaving here, perhaps you have tasted a bit of calm, some joy, a little bit of peace, maybe some inspiration. Maybe you feel um, encouraged now that you want to practice when you get home. It looks like at least some of you feel that way. You're starting practice groups or trying to. So then you get in your car, and sort of as the mileage ticks off and you get further and further away from Omega, your hard-earned calm and samadhi starts deteriorating. You know, you get cut off by someone, and then a big truck blows stuff in your face, and then there's a traffic jam, and then as we get, you know, I'll be going to Boston. Um, you won't be able to hold on to whatever it is you think you've attained here. It will start to dissipate itself. Because this place, the conditions are very, very good to help you calm down. We've, to some degree, created a stage set, you know, in this building to help us calm down. We've created conditions with your agreement. We've all co collaborated to help that happen. When you leave here, when you leave a retreat center, what I'm saying is by extension uh, true when you go to retreat centers, uh, the conditions are almost set up to destroy any kind of calm or concentration, because it's just, you know what the world is, I don't have to tell you. So then you might get discouraged and say, well, what was that? I mean, is that just uh, a temporary fix and now I'm going to be crazy again? Um, and you get all upset and suffer. But you see, wisdom uh, understands. Wisdom sees, oh, we were in a place where the conditions facilitate this kind of concentration. Whatever it is, it's conditional. And you begin to understand that. You begin to understand the law of impermanence. Oh, look at that. As I get closer and closer to Boston, my samadhi uh, goes down the tube because the conditions have changed. Hmm. You begin to see how we're conditioned creatures, how we're very dependent on what's happening to us. Now, the truth is, as the practice deepens, the whole point of the practice is that you become more equanimous, more steady, and less dependent on the conditions. So that as conditions change, you're more able to hold your balance. But to begin with, you won't be able to. You'll be bounced around by the conditions. Now you can either turn that into suffering and disappointment, or you can learn from it and see, oh, this is what they mean by everything is conditioned and impermanent. Okay. It isn't a waste of time, because what you've been doing here, even though you won't be able to hold on to some of it, is uh, the beginnings of something. Some of you have been practicing for a while, so it's not the beginnings in that, in that sense. But it's a, a deepening. It's something that gets deepened day in and day out. And the path doesn't unfold in a linear way. It goes more like this. You know, so don't attach to any way. If you've had a good sitting, to expect that the next sitting is going to be that much better. Not necessarily. We don't know. Life is uncertain from moment to moment. Reflect on that. Um, when you're, the, the daily life parts, I think we've, uh, a lot's been suggested and implied already, so I, no need to repeat that. Um, maybe to reinforce a few ideas, very simple ones. One is, Conscious breathing can be helpful not only on the cushion. Um, you're waiting online. Uh, 
I don't know, you're buying something, you're in the supermarket and you're waiting online. You're standing there. Maybe it's just two minutes, a minute and a half. Just turn to your breathing. You'll see that during the day, waiting for an elevator, waiting for a clerk to do something, waiting for the, a telephone and so forth. There are little uh, uh, patches of sort of space where not much is happening, not much is being asked of you, where you can just turn to the breath and settle down, even if it's just 10 seconds, two breaths, 20 breaths. Sometimes it's longer. You're a commuter, you have that train ride. Okay. Um, you're a driver, red light. Instead of it being uh, some kind of obstacle that's keeping you, those of you who have read Thich Nhat Hanh or have met, worked with him when he was here, you understand that you can turn anything into a, uh, something that helps you with your practice. The red light is an obstacle in one way of looking at it, and in another way of looking at it, it's a, a, med, a temple bell. You know, the red light says time to s sit still and follow your breath and calm down. Oh, thank you. You'll just be so happy to see red lights. Wherever <laughs> you'll never get to where you have to go, but you'll be a happy person. So you have to be creative. The breath also can be helpful in the midst of action. Uh, from time to time, let's say you're starting to get upset, sometimes simply uh, being in touch with a, a breath or two helps ground you, bring you back into the moment. Uh, you come home from a hard day's work and suddenly one or more children come running to you and jump on you. Sometimes the breath can help you uh, let the day go all of the, there's still the echo of what you've been doing all day and they want your full attention but you're not fully there because you're human. It's not that you're a bad parent. You're just, but sometimes the breathing can help you uh, come into this moment. Um, someone this morning asked me uh, describe something. Before the, you all came here, I came here much earlier this morning, about 8.30 or so. Um, I've, I've noticed, I hope this person doesn't mind, I'm not going to mention any names. Or, I noticed that I wanted to ask questions throughout the week, uh, but I noticed that the questions, I noticed, saw the motive. The motive was I wanted attention, to get attention directed at me. So, um, I watched that. I saw pride. I saw this. I saw that. Is, and the question was about, is that a, a good use of my time, a good practice? Excellent. Um, throughout the day, while you're living, you're having reactions. You can become more sensitive to your motives. As you start doing things, you start to see why you're doing what you're doing. People say things. Things happen. You can start to, uh, your um, instincts get quicker, much more quick like that. You start being in touch with uh, your reactions. You start being in touch with uh, what you're really intending as you say and do something. They're not necessarily the same. Sometimes there's a bit of duplicity there. That's a beautiful outfit you just have. What an ugly piece. You start, it's called self-knowledge. You begin to really know. Now, if you embark on the path of self-knowledge, be prepared because a lot of cherished self-images are going to get shattered. And to begin with, that can be quite painful. Uh, because none of us are these images. These images are uh, dramatic simplifications. 
just like, you know, a graduation portrait is. You know, it's all touched up by a professional photographer. Everyone who graduates has beautiful white teeth and, you know, smiling. And then it's put on the piano or the mantle someplace, or it's in a wallet. It's one second in time, frozen. This is who you are. But then you get to meet the person instead of the photo on the... And much, it's, there's so much change in the course of a day. So we're not any of these snapshots. And images have that capacity. We fasten on to them, uh, positive, negative, and so forth, and live a lot of our life in accordance with those images, defending them, being hurt when they get crushed. But here I'm not saying crush them. I'm just saying get to know, uh, see how the mind is like an image-making factory. Also of other people, if you've been living with someone for a long time, oh yeah, we have them all down pat. We know who they are, and they know who we are. We form images of them, they form images of us. Now as you start living, you can become sensitive to that realm. And so sometimes what happens is you begin to see how you actually live rather than how you think you live. That's why I was emphasizing that. Uh, so there's opportunity for learning, for letting go, for liberating yourself in the moment all over the place. From this point of view, the real teacher is life itself. If you're willing to be a student, the problem is there are no students. The curriculum's all set. And it's a fantastic faculty. The faculty is everything and everywhere. But there are, there's a shortage of students. Okay, so if you want to sign up for this one, just be careful because <laughs> you're going to learn uh, it's going to be accurate. It's a mirror. But of course, that's the way to, uh, that's what real meditation is about. It's about learning how to be honest and learning how to uh, see the truth. Well, the truth with a capital T starts with smaller truths along the way, personal ones about ourselves. And it can be very rich. Uh, to me, it is. I mean, I feel I'm always learning. Uh, I can't imagine feeling like a finished product despite those acclamations yesterday. Because it's an ongoing challenge to be alive. And uh, a life of awareness is jumping in. It's not to be afraid of life. Um, maybe the, just the last suggestion, uh, because really those are just a few hints and then you have to do it. You know, you have the tools. It's not that there's some special thing for daily life. It's more your real interest and willingness. And also, I must admit, remembering to do it. From time to time, throughout the day, these days maybe five or six times a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, I'll just remember the Buddha's words, be mindful. Be mindful is his advice from time to time. Just simple words, you know, oh. You know, when you get lost or on a roll somewhere, and just remind yourself, be mindful. Not be mindful, it's not a stern, harsh thing, it's just a gentle reminder, and then, at least for me, it helps me wake up and notice where I am. Um, this final point, I think, is something that I know has been emphasized, so I'm, I'm just going to add to it, but in daily life it becomes, I can't say more important, but it's certainly, um, we have less control, perhaps, than we have here. Jobs and other situations. You know, there was a, uh, a study of films, um, a piece of research on um, Hollywood films, I think thousands of them, and they wanted to find out 
what were the most common lines, you know, lines in films? And so they got a whole bunch of them. All of them in themselves were quite amusing. But you know which one won? The one that was most popular? Let's get out of here. <laughs> okay. And I realized, right, of course. Okay. So somehow, wherever you are, there's got to be a better place than this. There's got to be a better person, better teacher, a better uh, growth center, a better meal than this one, better weather, a better place to live, better planet Earth. Uh, let's get out of here. Let's, let's go golfing, swimming, skiing, something. There's got to be something that's better than where I am. Whereas the practice is, let's stay a while, you know, or let's learn like this is where I am. Uh, so more and more start playing with that one. And um, let me tell you what I mean by wholeheartedness. We have a lot of very strong attitudes and likes and dislikes. All of us do. Some of us hate to do the dishes. Some of us love to do the dishes. Some people love vacuuming. I don't know how many, but some do. <laughs> And some, uh, you know, just think of the things we have to do every day, brush our teeth over and over. There's a lot of routine in life. Okay. Um, wholeheartedness is not like uh, muscular. You know, it's just sort of like, yes, he's right, I'm just going to dive into life. And uh, it's, it's much more subtle than that. It's when you're doing something to notice separation. Let's say you're washing the dishes. And while you're washing the dishes, you can see that the mind is somewhere else. It's, it's rehearsing what it's going to say to someone two hours later or thinking about the movie you're going to or uh, just fantasizing about anything. And the dishes get done. They're even spotless. Somehow the arms know what to do. The water comes out, the soap, nice dishes. You can get a compliment on it. But you weren't there. So it's more subtle. Typically, separation comes from thinking. So that we humans have a knack of while we're doing something, we're also thinking uh, about something else usually. Or we're thinking about what we're doing in such a way that it um, separates us from what we're doing. Like, uh, I don't like this, or we're, I want to get it over with, or how boring it is. So start noticing uh, separation in the activities. When you start seeing separation, you'll find yourself becoming more intimate with what you do. To me, that sums up the, whole, the essence of the whole practice. I believe I mentioned it earlier this week, but if I didn't, I, anyway, I'll say it again. A very great master named Dogen Zenji, a Japanese Zen master, was asked, what is the awakened mind, or what is the, what is the enlightened mind? And he said, it's being intimate with everything. Of course, the main thing to be intimate with is yourself. If you're not intimate with yourself, then how are you going to be intimate with, with other things? There's always that problem between you and the other things. Some of our problem in relationship, I do have one more thing to say, is that uh, people who are not intimate with themselves, uh, desperately wanting intimacy with someone else, who also is not intimate with themselves, how can real intimacy come out of that? It just can't work, and yet we're always disappointed. We also load, I think, too much onto the other person. I think you'll start to see this. We expect, and here's where the spiritual attitude can be very, very helpful. 
somehow we want the other person to make everything that's off in our life okay. And no one can do that for you. So the poor other person, they have all your projections on top of them. And then, of course, you're going to get disappointed, and perhaps they're doing that to you as well. When you begin to see that this other person is impermanent, they lack self, they're not so unified, but neither are you. And two changing entities uh, are wanting some kind of real deep fulfillment and certitude uh, in a realm that I don't think can provide it. This is not saying you should become a nun or a monk. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that there's a deeper level to which all spiritual paths are directed. And when you don't load that onto a person and try to expect them to deliver something to you that they can't possibly deliver, suddenly uh, it can be a much more fulfilling relationship. When you uh, see how their humanness, and if they can see your humanness, and self-knowledge, it's not a, the practice is not about becoming perfect. It's about understanding and self-acceptance so that the practice very much can help us learn to live with each other. Relationship is a kind of mirror. If you're living with someone, uh, or even just any time you're in the presence of someone, your reactions to them is showing you something about yourself. And so from that point of view, all of us, whenever we're in each other's presence, are teaching one another if we're willing to learn from what it brings up in you. This is not suggesting passivity. For example, just take the simple example of this morning of the person saying, um, I didn't ask the question because I saw that uh, I just wanted attention. Well, that was the main motive. Okay. Now, let's say uh, if we could rerun that and the person does that and they see oh, I, I'm not really interested in this question. Uh, I just want to get attention. And maybe then you don't ask the question. But sometimes you may see some other motive as you're thinking of asking a question or whatever it is. And you see it and you let it go. But then you can still ask the question, only it's coming from a very different place now. Uh, it doesn't mean the question's no good. It meant that you were misusing the dialogue form in one sense. You know, it's okay, we're all imperfect again, so we want attention. But as you learn about it, then you can drop some of that. It just falls away, it gets weaker. Uh, the same with the kind of learning. It's not... Um, being in the moment is sometimes misunderstood to mean passivity and fatalism. It's sort of, well, this is the way it is. Buddhists feel that this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Uh, it's a crazy world, but this is the way it is. Uh, my friends are nuts, but this is the way it is. It's not saying that at all. Uh, because action that comes out of being intimate with the way it is has a much better chance of being skillful action than action is, that's based on some uh, imagining that has, doesn't have a whole lot to do with the way it is. Let me give you a simple example. Very simple. Let's say we're all meditating, as we have been. We have our eyes closed. It's a silly example, but it points to other situations that are more complex. And you hear the instructions as I, you know, drone on as I've been doing all week, you know, be with the way it is, this breath, you know, your experience right now. Uh, fine, and you're learning how to not get ahead of yourself, to not get dwell on the past or hanker after the future, just be right where you are. 
And suddenly it starts getting very hot. And then it gets hotter and hotter. And you peek and you see that the building is on fire. Okay. I would think that as a good Vipassana yogi would be the first one to be out of here. That is, you would be in touch with the way it is. And the way it is, it's red hot and the building is on fire. And you would scream something and out the door. Do you see what I'm getting at? So it's not a counsel against action or being passive or fatalistic. It's in the hands of the Buddha. It's nothing like that. It's being in touch with, it's being more accurate about what is actually happening so that the actions are informed by something that's closer to reality than just all this stuff that the mind manufactures. Finally, uh, very common, excuse me, that doesn't go away, sorry. (laughs) You sit for a thousand years, I think. If you have a body, you have, oh. Um, seems very common, at least in the circles that I move in, and I'm getting a feeling it's true among you as well, that when there's a couple, one person meditates and one doesn't. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Sometimes the couples practice together, and that's fine. Um, and I've learned a little bit about that. Uh, I'm hardly an expert. I mean, anyone who says they're an expert on relationship, I don't know, I'd be careful. Uh, that's because that's the most difficult thing on the planet. I don't mean just into a personal relationship, just how do, how do we human beings live together? How can we get along? We don't seem to know how to do it. Uh, what I've found is that um, there are many cases where one person meditates and the other doesn't, and there's a happy marriage, or a happy relationship, or partnership, or living together, whatever. Uh, what I've tried to understand is why is this one working? Um, And what I found is a couple of very uh, simple elements. One is respect. Um, The person who's not meditating uh, does respect the person who's a meditator's right to meditate. And it also goes the other way, and sometimes that's harder because meditators become messianic. You know, they think they've found the solution to everything. This is it. And then they drive their poor part, non-meditating partner crazy. They have to respect the other person's right to not. I know this insight meditation is fantastic. I'm not interested. No, but you don't understand. It's incredible. It will take you to a liberation. Everybody say, I'm not interested. Okay. So you have to respect the other person's right to not do that. One person can be, as I'm thinking of one couple now, very, very political. And her husband is not. He's really quite into these things, but he respects her political sensibilities and action that she's involved with. And she really understands that he's very cut out for this and needs it. She's also learned, and some of you who are new, maybe you can counsel the non-meditator waiting for you back home. Um, Now, I have to tell you what the truth is, not sugarcoat it. Very often, when you, the retreat improves the relationship, because it improves you. So if you have a bit more peace and fulfillment, when you go home, the real beneficiary is your partner, your husband, your wife, and your children. Because uh, you can't give anyone more than who you are. The reason I hesitated earlier is that it isn't a Hollywood ending kind of thing at all. Uh, but anyway, if it, when it's like that, At some point, I think, the other person learns 
to not feel so threatened, to not see the, you going away on a retreat as some, uh, it's, it's an excuse to have an affair, it's a giant mixer, uh, it's, uh, these are things, I, I didn't make these up, this is what people say. Um, or, uh, you're gonna become a monk or a nun, and, and then, uh, you know, what'll happen? You leave me here with ten children, and you'll be off on the mountaintop meditating? So there are all kinds of, some of them, most of them, rather unrealistic fantasies. So if the relationship is, has some, is solid, uh, you have to help that other person understand that that's not it at all. Because if they've never been to a retreat, how are they going to know? Uh, but here's the part that I was going to say. The practice is not offering you, in my opinion, happy ending. Maybe ultimately, certainly. But it's offering you truth. If a relationship, and this is the part where I've seen uh, sometimes relationships break up and meditation is blamed for it, but it's really not poor meditation's fault. It's used as a political football. There's something really off. The relationship is foundering. Something is really wrong. And so then this gets all blown out of proportion and is used as to indicate the separation, but the separation is there. What I'm trying to say is awareness shows you what's there. If you're really not supposed to be together, it's going to be harder and harder to to stay together in misery. It's harder to pull that one off. We human beings seem to be very, very good at coping and putting up with things. We can put up with things for years till finally we can't stand it and we explode. But, it can, but years can go by. It gets harder to do that as you pay attention. First of all, you see how precious your life is. Okay, now this is a, a minor theme in my experience. But just so you understand that uh, Sorry, I destroy every the whole week. I just destroyed the whole week with one. <laughs> Loosen up, lighten up a little bit. <laughs> Haven't you already seen that it shows you the way things are? So won't that just carry over into your relationship? Of course. It's not necessarily fatal. It could help your relationship if something's off and you see it. And maybe you're not talking about it. Then you're betraying your understanding. And you're also not helping the other person. Maybe you're afraid. Well, I can't tell them. They'll, they'll, then they'll really leave or they'll abandon me. And so you keep it in to yourself. But then that doesn't help. So then you have to examine the fear. Why am I afraid of living my understanding? And you work with that, with the practice. So that sometimes seeing these, in quotes, problems, are the best thing you can do. So uh, meditation is neutral in a certain way. Let me, um, many of you know John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, he's um, my oldest friend. We go back almost 40 years now. We've started a long time ago and our paths were very, very close friends. Uh, has parallels every step along the way. But there was one point we were both teaching in the university and the more I, and we both had the same teacher, we both did the same retreats, we both love this meditation. Just check a checklist. We were reading the same books, uh, talking it over in the same coffee shops in Cambridge, uh, delighted with our discovery, and it led me right out the door, out of the university, as I saw it. And it led him deeper and deeper into the university. He's now a professor at the University of Massachusetts. So in that, in that sense, there's no content. Uh, it shows you 
the truth. And then you more and more can live in accordance with that. And so he's really happy doing what he's doing at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And I'm happy being out of the university. It has nothing to do with the university or the medical school. It has to do with, with us. Each one of us is different. And it's in that spirit that I mean it. Okay, I think I've said enough. Anything on your mind before we uh, pack it in? Exhale. Yeah. Oh yeah. Some of you also asked about um, IMS in Cambridge and places. I forgot. Um, uh, yeah, there are some. Yeah. Um, in the Buddha's teaching, if you ever decide to take refuge, it's what you take refuge and precepts, which are you take on certain ethical principles to uh, train with to refine your, the level of integrity, and you also take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha on one level is a historical person, but at a deeper level, it's that quality of mind, the awakened mind, that all of us have, that is personified by one historical person. And at an even deeper level, it's you. It's your full potential. The, sangha, the uh, Dharma, the teaching, so at one level it could be books, which are the doctrine or talks that I've been giving here. But at a much deeper level, it's the, the lawfulness in life that the books are based on, that are to some degree apprehending and putting into words so that we can grasp it. Uh, and at a deeper level than that, it's seeing that lawfulness in yourself at work. The Sangha is a community of practitioners, and it has so different meanings. Sometimes it's called, it means... Uh, those people who have had some degree of awakening, all of those, sometimes it is used much more in a more limited way as just monks and nuns. And at other times, the more inclusive way in which it's used is that all of us who are practicing, who are practicing together. These are three things. Obviously, at least the Buddha thought community is extremely important. It's one-third of what you're asked to take refuge in. Uh, I think it's just totally realistic, that's all. We human beings need a lot of help. I think it's harder to do some of the things we did this week alone. There comes a point where it isn't. And then uh, the Sangha is like a beautiful and wonderful dessert. You don't need it, but it's just lovely to have nice friends who uh, you can practice with and who see eye to eye with you and who you can enjoy. But to begin with, it's very, very helpful to have company uh, to help the practice develop and develop some s stability. So if you can find even just, uh, maybe you're living in some place there's only, there's one other person who's, who does this practice or even close. Meet once a week, practice together, sit together, uh, perhaps play a tape of some teacher, uh, have tea together, talk over what your experience of your sitting was. Uh, it can really help. We, we've seen that time and time again. You may not live near a center or near anyone who teaches these things. Other useful things that you can do is um, on your own or in a small group, but let me just su suggest on your own, take a morning and uh, devote it to mindfulness or a whole day. Um, disconnect the phone. Tell your friends if they can to leave you alone. Um, and have enough food in the house and set up a schedule, even post it on the fridge, 
you know, just sitting and walking and also some time for, let's say, cleaning the house. But maintain silence, meals, cooking mindfully, eating mindfully, just alone. Um, when you clean the house, do it mindfully. Just So it's all practice. And sit and walk to begin with, maybe modestly start out with a half a day. And then there are many people now who do days of mindfulness in their own home. Uh, and it's wonderful. Uh, you can do it with a friend and so forth. If you want to... Um, get more of what you tasted here. There are places like the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, not so far from here. I don't know how many hours, three or four. Um, where it's a place that's devoted only to this. So that that's the only thing going on. From early morning, if you sign up for a retreat, there are some weekends, not, not a huge number. Most of them are about 10 days, and then there are longer ones for a few weeks and even months. Um, typically you get up at around 5 in the morning, you start practicing at 5.30, and it's total silence except when you meet with the teacher, or uh, sometimes you, everyone has a, short, a job that's usually about 20 minutes to half an hour, um, and you're expected to do the job, let's say it's cut vegetables or cleaning out something, to do it mindfully. And sometimes you need to talk, but other than that you maintain silence, and there's usually a talk once a day. And other than that, it's very simple. It's sitting and walking, sitting and walking till you're blue in the face. Okay. If you like that kind of stuff, there, are, there is this place. If you're ever near Cambridge, uh, we're trying to do something. I divide my time between IMS and Cambridge. To me, it's one thing. Um, Cambridge is not residential. I live there, and three other people live there. Uh, but people have their normal lives, and their public sittings in the morning, in the evening, which anyone can come to. And there are interviews, and the interviews uh, happen in the, during a retreat. We have retreats, retreats most weekends, either one day or two days or three days. But also we have retreats that are, um, excuse me, interviews that are about half an hour where you can talk about what's happening in your life, work, family, etc. But it's not psychotherapy because we're not, there are two other people who help me. We, we teach together there. Um, it's more listening to your life from, from this angle. How, how can practice be useful? If you live in California, there's, of course, a lot going on. You, I know you all know about it. And I think there will, in the future, be more centers developing. But it's a slow process. Because to do it right, it takes quite a while to develop a teacher. Often it takes many, many years. And certain kinds of... It's not just quantity of years. That's not it. The person has to have seen certain things and... Usually it goes along with um, a lot of intense retreats. Not always. But anyway, if you're drawn to it, that might be your next step. Um, those of you who are interested gave me your names, and I'll, if you give me permission, it's more junk mail for you. You know, you get one from Cambridge and one from IMS. I can't think of anything else to say. Yes, I I think it's a very good idea. You know, there, there are already some lists out there. By the way, one is around Washington, D.C. Uh, did any of you see two Buddhist monks on the grounds? They were there, two from Sri Lanka. I don't, know, I don't know them. I was looking for them to say hello. I know their teacher, actually. At any rate, there is a center 
in Washington, D.C., and there's also one in West Virginia about an hour. Uh, it's called the Bhavana Society with an excellent teacher, Bhante Gunaratna. I suggested his book in the bookstore. It's called Mindfulness in Plain English. A very, very good book for you all to, if you, haven't, if you want one book to take home, that would be a, a good one. Anyway, he has a center there, and he's, he's really a fine, fine teacher and a fine person. Uh, and there's a, a center in D.C. itself that you might want to look into. It's uh, run by Sri Lankan monks, but I don't know anything else about it. But I think it would be helpful if those of you who, who have the beginnings of a sangha meet. We, don't have, we have to get to the main center, so you can meet very briefly, but perhaps you can arrange to meet at lunchtime or sometime after that um, to get that rolling, to, if, you, if you want to, to all meet together maybe one night a week or something like that. Any other questions about this stuff or the, the practice, anything that's really unfinished? We only have a few minutes. Yes? Um, how important is a teacher? I have a bias. Uh, the bias is just based on my experience. Uh, teachers have been incredibly helpful to me. I have, there are about, I would say, almost all of them. There was one, it took me a while to recover from him. <laughs> one of these really corrupt ones. The first, early on, you know, and uh, almost anyone from India with a beard we thought was... You know, it didn't matter. They could, and oh, um, yeah. Oh, if you yes, I understand. Well, I think I just um, okay. Let me speak to about the teacher in this particular tradition, because the role of the teacher is different from spiritual tradition to spiritual tradition. This is not a guru-oriented tradition. I'm not saying that guru is bad, because if you have a genuine guru and a genuine student, some beautiful things can come out of that. I don't see that happening too often, unfortunately. It's very often exploited, it seems. But that's not the fault of the system. Um, the Buddhist teachings puts a tremendous emphasis on self-reliance. The Buddha is famous for, uh, for saying, be a, a light unto yourself. Okay. So that sounds like, great, thank you very much for these five days, and I'll just go and do it. Uh, but it turns out that we all need help, and even in the Buddha's times, he suggested that the practitioners stay with him for about five years. So, But what he was trying to help them do was stand on their own two feet. Now, my first teacher was, some of you have heard of Krishnamurti. He's the extreme on that. And... Um, he was, was, and even from his grave, continues to be immensely helpful to me. Uh, and he was extreme in the sense of not spoon-feeding. Yet he was a very loving, very compassionate, very generous, affectionate, wonderful human being. Uh, but if he saw you trying to make him into something, uh, he, in other words, uh, use him to render yourself four years old and turn yourself into a thumb-sucking child, he would undercut that. And in short, transference and counter-trans, you know, all of that stuff. He didn't force the uh, building, using the teacher to build dependence out of. Unless you were really desperate, then of course he would really do his best to, to hold you up. So in this tradition, I think, uh, I know in my own training, we're encouraged to not um, 
to help the, the student stand on their own two feet as soon as they can. So if somebody's been very damaged by life, of course you're providing more support. But it's like bringing a child up. As the child gets stronger, you know, I think a healthy parent wants a healthy child to flap their wings and fly away and to have love that way rather than uh, dependent and crippled and so forth. Um, so teachers can be helpful. But if you don't have a teacher, and right now there aren't very many, so probably you don't, uh, it's not fatal. Because as I said, the real teacher's life anyway. So the question is, are you willing to learn from your experience? So what can you, you can substitute, substitute for a teacher. Sometimes we get discouraged. Books can help. In Cambridge, people seem to devour tapes for some reason. Okay. Uh, sometimes you just feel, I can't sit if it kills me. And you just hear a tape or you just read a line from Thich Nhat Hanh or whoever it is that helps you. And Okay. And you get your butt on the cushion again. And it turns out to be not so difficult or so bad. Um, but that's why friendship is important, spiritual friendship. Um, it's not fatal. When you're not with a teacher, that can make you strong. Because you'll have to learn how to, you'll really have to learn how to take care of yourself. If there's a genuine teacher available, I think you'd be foolish not to take advantage of it. It's somebody who's practiced longer than you, who's made all the mistakes, who can see them in you, who can point that out and help you learn how to walk. Isn't it good to have a good parent? So it's, it's something like that. So everyone's situation is different. And also people's temperament is different. Some people need more help than other people. It's not a judgment, it's just true. Uh, so we have to work with, what, with the way it is. And the way it is is, I don't know, each, it's different for each of you. But if you don't have a teacher, here's the main point, it's not fatal. Start practicing. Finally, to me, the, the, the most important teacher is the practice. If you get, a, a for example, um, a sitting, in some Zen traditions, they'll say Zazen is the real teacher. Zazen means, you know, sitting. For me, it's more comprehensive than sitting. It includes all of life. But if you want to limit it to sitting, that's fine. Because you'll learn so much from if you sit with yourself every day. Okay, um, I'd like to just close with a very brief Buddhist chant, and I'll tell you what it means at the end. Anicavata Sankara Upadavai Yadamino Upakituva Nirujanti Kesam Vupasamo Sukho Would you like to chant it with me? I know some of you may feel awkward, then don't chant it. I'll just say it and then you can repeat it. Anichavata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upakituva Nirujanti K 
Yesam Vupasamo Sukho Everything that arises passes away. When this arising and passing away itself passes away, you're in the land of stillness and bliss. Thank you very much for your hard work and cooperation. I think we all did a, a nice little piece of work these five days. And uh, the only way it can happen is everyone pulls together what you all did. So I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.